Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper Sunday, January 6th, 2019. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And, and if it's January 6th, that means it's almost January 7th. Right. Which means another happy, happy birthday, Daniel Abuhoff. Yes, tomorrow. All right. Tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Yes, we are. Uh, well, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the crowds in New York City. We're going to talk a little about Broadway. Uh, we're going to talk about the Vikings. We haven't been talking about the Vikings. I mean, the real Not Vikings. Not the Minnesota Vikings. Not the Minnesota Vikings. The real Vikings. In Old English, we don't talk about that enough. And finally, something about New Year's resolutions. But let's start. Wait, 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 wait. First, we need the licorice update. Oh, the licorice update. Because Mr. Abuhoff yeah. got as a Christmas gift. Yeah. Several uh, packages packages of theoretically uh, authentic licorice, Dutch, Real licorice. Dutch licorice. licorice. That's right. I, I think it was still manufactured for American consumption, not for the uh, you know the weaker part. Uh, no, I got you three flavors. Three flavors. Got you sweet. Yeah. Slightly salted and the double salt and double salt and the double salt. And my favorite is the double salt. This is this is a real man's licorice. I don't. No one else has has, has really warmed up to this licorice except for me. And I, I like did it. all right with it. I tried slightly salted. Yeah, we're recommending it. We'll see if I'm still in good shape next Once week. Once again, licorice cures everything. We'll see. We'll so see. I'm willing to give it a try. Let's just say. Let me just say this. It tastes like nothing else you've never had in your mouth before. I think I, we can stick with that. Okay. All right. We won't Thank elaborate. You. All right. Yes. So that's the licorice update. Okay. All right. Now, right. the New York update. The cra It's official. The crowds in New York are out of control during this holiday season, although it's winding down. But, but we down. told everybody that. Yes, but I have the stats now. So crowded. So crowded. This Says is the New York Times. That 40,000 pounds of pastrami and beef were served last in the week between Christmas and New Year's in Katz's Delicatessen on the Lower East Side, where 3,000 to 4,000 visitors Flock each day, standing in lines that were three blocks long. So crowded. So crowded. Believe me, it's cats. Cats is normally not crowded. So crowded that skaters waited more than an hour to skate in Bryant Park. Well, we've seen that before. So crowded that they shut down the pedestrian and bike lanes on the Brooklyn Bridge because there were too many people. The pedestrian and bike lanes. That's right. There were so many people. In fact, they're thinking of. Charging some kind of admission yeah. to walk across the Brooklyn Only that Bridge. week, though. Only that week. I, I don't think you can do it other time. But they were saying that there were an average of 350,000 pedestrians each day in December in Times Square. And that is an increase of nearly 6% from last year. So, and we saw it firsthand. As you said, we reported yeah. on it last week. It's crazy. Yeah. It's Finally, out of control. Finally, the New York Times catches up to Right. Us but who was again. the big beneficiary of this, Tamsin? It was... The theaters. Broadway. Exactly. Record Broadway week, says the New York Times, with Hamilton in lead. Hamilton, last week, grossed over four million buckos. In one week. First Broadway show yeah. ever to make that much money in a single week. Okay. So people are excited about this. Um, actually, five different, five plays. That right. is non-musicals. Well, that's notable. Actually grossed over a million bucks last week. That is notable. And, uh, there, you know, people who are producing the plays are kind of excited. Several of the plays, uh, such as Lifespan of a Fact, 
have already announced uh, that they have recouped their investment. Yes, but let costs. me put just a little cold water. It's not like there are five plays like five Arthur Miller plays or five Tennessee Williams plays. The five plays are there are Harry Potter. In other words, a prepackaged gate for Harry Potter. It's to kill a mockingbird. There's a prepackaged gate for kill a mockingbird, and even network. There's a little bit of a prepackaged gate for network. But also lifespan of a fact. And the ferryman. Right, but those three, the first three were the leaders by a long shot. I just think it's exciting that in this day and age where so much of entertainment is uh, viewed by people on their little telephones, that uh, there is still this enthusiasm for seeing entertainment in person. I'm going to agree with you, but with a little bit of a twist. I agree with you to the extent that not only are people interested, but they're willing to pay for it. There's no better proof than that people are reaching their pocketbooks and willing to pay for it. But also, what also is going on is that they unleash the pricing on Broadway. And rather than having the stock, you know, whatever the top price was across the board, at one point it was 80, one point 100, 120, whatever it was, they, each show just said, you know something, we're going to get what we can get, as opposed to letting the ticket scalpers get what they can get. And that's right. that's what's changed everything. Well, that's with true. Hamilton that changes. Taking the lead. The, that does change. And the, the, and the average, you, you said top ticket for Hamilton now is eight hundred dollars. No, no, no. Well, the top ticket is eight forty nine. Right. The average price. Right. Is three seventy five. Right. And that was, and that's what's running this also. So. Uh, uh, well, but attendance has also gone up. Okay. Okay. Money is up, but you know. Fanny's in the seats. Fanny's in the seats is up as right. well. Listen, that's and, impressive. You know, certain productions also help that, like you know, Springsteen. Yeah, Springsteen's show brought in a tremendous well, amount, one hundred and thirteen million dollars yeah. over its fourteen. Well, shows. you're seeing more creativity in the types of shows like a Springsteen. You're also seeing the way they produce shows like a Network, which is the multimedia presentation. Uh, which I think brings in broader audiences. Uh, Harry Potter is filled with special effects. Brings in Broadway audiences, so they're being innovative. So they're being rewarded. And again, and I think everybody benefits. I think there is really a difference between watching something on your own and seeing something, having sort of a communal uh, experience with laughing and crying and clapping uh, with other people. Even when you don't talk to them or know them, uh, that group experience in the theater uh, enhances yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. So we, along the same lines, we saw um, something about New York called uh, The New York Story, which is... Yes, yes. At one of my um, holiday gatherings, Dana O'Brien uh, recommended New York Story by comedian Colin Quinn. Right. And I knew nothing about him. And it was, and a, it was a Broadway show? Broadway or off-Broadway? Well, it's his show. Uh, um, it was in New York, and it was produced, it was directed by Jerry Seinfeld. Right. Yeah. And we got it on Netflix or something On Netflix. Like. It's on Netflix now. And, and uh, what do you think? I thought it was great. Yeah, I really funny. thought it was amusing. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's sort of the history of immigrants uh, dealing with New York or how various uh, groups have experienced and perhaps changed uh, the New York experience. Yes, it's, a, it's and uh, yeah, and it's comedy. It's so funny. It's funny. We recommend it to anybody. It's, an, it's an only an hour long. It's uh, a little politically incorrect, maybe even a lot politically incorrect. Maybe that's why it's funny. But it is funny. It covers every different uh, ethnic group that I can think of at least. Yes. Colin Quinn, yeah. New York Story. 
All right, so just a step out of New York for just a second. I'm going to get carried away, but also there was an article last week in the Wall Street Journal saying it's not about New York or even about San Francisco. It's second-tier cities that we should all be looking for. I've been recommending second-tier cities for years. Well, now the Wall Street Journal. I love a good second-tier city. Right. So what are we uh, talking about? We're talking about second-tier cities. What do they mean? They mean uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, Dallas, Nashville, uh, Columbus, Ohio, places like that. Pittsburgh is on their list of second-tier cities. So why are they recommending them? They're saying that they have low unemployment, but even more impressive, they have labor force growth, which is an even more important statistic in terms of whether cities are thriving or not. So why is it that uh, these cities are doing well? And it's sort of, according to the article at least, it's sort of uh, yin and yang. Two things are going on. Um, one is that uh, by the nature of the cities, they're affordable and there's a great quality of life. There is that. But also some of them are the site of universities, which are research universities. And there's talent. They, they, you know, they talk about Raleigh and Columbus, Ohio and Pittsburgh in that connection. Uh, the result is you bring employers in and they come in and there are jobs and you have the low unemployment and the growth of opportunities. And it seems to be a great place to be. So... And lots of times they're more livable, more accessible. More affordable. Than right. being somewhere like Brooklyn, right. uh, Manhattan, Don't have the same crowds that New York has at Christmas time. <laughs> Perhaps not, which but you know might what? be a lot of fun. But you know what they don't have, honestly, and it's no small thing? They don't have the theater. And I don't mean just the theater qua theater. They don't have, there's a lot that New York has. Things just like, like we saw Sondheim two weeks ago. You're not going to, Columbus, Ohio, you're not going to look at the paper and say, let's go next week and see Steve Sondheim talk. That's not happening. So it, it's it's a different thing, but there's a lot to speak for. There are different offerings. Yeah. But uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we uh, we think cities have a lot to offer. You would others on your list even besides those. It's, it's Richmond, Virginia, right? I know, but maybe it wasn't included. Maybe it's a first tier city. We don't know. <laughs> I've been. A I don't know what makes first. I've been a Richmond. Year, I don't, it's, it's not first year, but, but it's, uh, it's there. All right. So here's another thing that had us uh, thinking a little bit. And and you you were as interested in this as I was. Uh, no, no, no. You're the main guy. Every time yeah. we see a car commercial around Christmas, yeah. and that is how we know it's the Christmas season, because usually the car commercial with the car outside with the big bow yeah. is the first Christmas commercial. Right. And um, you always say, are those real? Is is that a thing? The people, people get... Really I don't, I don't get know cars is, for Christmas, and do they put bows on them? And I, to me, it's crazy. First of all, it seems like a bizarre Christmas gift. It's a, it's a little bit like giving an appliance, but it's like costs thirty times more in your refrigerator. It seems like a family decision. And number two is and a big bow on it, and it comes to Christmas time. It seems nuts, and it turns out once again, uh, I'm yes, out of touch. And yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and yes. People do thing. give them as gifts. Right. Most gift cards cars are given by men to wives, girlfriends, or children. Well, I think it should be wives, girlfriends, and children. They're probably all three you know, sometimes no, oh, in a very big year. And, but, uh, uh, and they, do, they do have bows. They have to have and bows. And there's a picture in the New York Times of uh, people making bows at king-size bows in Costa Mesa, California. Well, they actually say in the article, they talk to one car dealer, and the car dealer says, you have to have the bow. He says, I'm not going to say the car is not important. But uh, there's, sometimes there's no sale without the bow. Right. And people insist on it, and we run out of bows. Yeah. And, and, and it, they actually, the car dealers often will say, if it's not important to you, can you return the bow? Right. Because <laughs> they run out. And people don't return it 
<laughs> they don't really? feel bad. And they do all kinds of things to present the car. They preserve. They prefer to present it in the off in the car showroom. Right. Okay, that's easier for everybody. But they have driven to people's houses in the middle of Christmas Eve night or the early hours of the morning. They've had guys dress up like a butler handling, handing the keys to somebody who answers the door, et cetera. So anyway, it is a thing. Keep that in mind. It is not like giving somebody a vacuum cleaner, Dan. Oh, really actually, nice, really nice vacuum cleaner. Like because, a you know, people actually put a lot of... Uh, their sort of ego on the line with the uh, car they drive. Um, and it has a lot of shows, uh, uh, resonance for people in terms of uh, their reputation and their personality really? and what they're saying to the world well, by s- what they're driving. I'm sorry to hear that, but okay. I will say this. It's just another example of how I'm out of touch with what's really going on in society. And I'm learning from television. If I think not, they said, did they say that Mercedes first started it a uh, uh, year to remember? Was that Mercedes or something? Yeah, that might have been. But, yeah. uh, in but the Lexus 90s. has it now, Range Rover has uh, it. Yeah, and uh, so it's funny. Do people really give like um, Toyota Corollas for Christmas? Well, I, mean, I, I wonder what the percentage is. The, the nice thing about Toyota Corolla, you don't need as big a boat. If you have a smaller boat by scale, it would still make the same impression. I think you want, I think everybody wants the biggest boat they could get. <laughs> Sometimes a Toyota Corolla is a pretty nice gift, but any event, uh, live and learn. So here's something else that kind of surprised me, at least. Maybe, maybe, maybe you were surprised, Tamsin. Maybe you weren't. Um, and that is that they're starting to make uh, skyscrapers out of wood. Yeah, I found that super surprising. Yeah. <laughs> it never even occurred to me. Right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, mainly you're excited about not building with wood. Because yes. wood burns. Well, that has always you know, been the issue. When you when you have a wooden skyscraper and it goes up in flame, that's quite a flame. Yes. Well, so that that's a problem. They they have addressed that. I won't go into the details about how they address it. There's a little bit more of an issue with wood, but on the other hand, you know, metal melts. There there's some. They, they both have their limitations, but uh, in fact, it also costs more to build something out of wood at a very high height. Um, yes, wood is expensive but, relative but, to concrete. But it's better for the environment, and they say there are some maintenance advantages. Uh, also, what I mean by better for the environment, first of all, there's a lot of wood around. Second is, unlike the production of concrete and steel, which generates huge amounts of carbon dioxide, uh, the creation of lumber is a low pollution process. And in places where, the, where there's wood all around, like Portland, it's tremendously attractive. It's actually, the, the bottom line is it's, it's practical, it's doable. Um, and uh, and some people love it. There's a quote here. They say it's almost like walking into a Swedish sauna. It's incredibly beautiful. But what are we talking about? We're talking about buildings that are not 80 stories high. We're talking about 15 stories high, 17 stories high, 18 stories high. Well, the tallest one right now, I think, is 14 stories. It's a condo in, you guessed it, people, Portland, Oregon. Right. Um, and there are proposals for taller buildings. Right. Uh, most, pe- most places are not approving... Uh, more than like 10 or 11 stories right. for a wooden building at the moment. But right. And there knows? are proposals for I mean, Williamsburg and Williamsburg and Brooklyn. They're, and they may build it, but they're going to need some kind of approvals to get it done. But uh, I love wood. It's just the idea of it, to see a 15-story building. And, and again, it, it's the second-tier cities, maybe. But you but know just, the Romans would be turning over in their graves. Because they're concerned because about fire? Because their excitement was concrete. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Why would because you go the, with wood? That's we the Pantheon. concrete. The Pantheon is concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. 
Uh, look, yeah. I think uh, it's just amazing. What's old is it. new again. Yeah, it's something to look forward to. Speaking of which, old is new again. Old English. Yes. For the new, here's right. something we thought wasn't coming back. So, <laughs> there's a great article yes, in I'm the listening. magazine section yeah. of the New York Times. Title is Old English, and it's by Josephine Livingstone. And it's just a very well-written um, sort of ode to the language by this woman. It's uh, wonderful to read, even if you don't give a flying fig about Old English. Now, I do. I do. I'm highly aware of that. One of the best courses I ever took in my life was Old English. I even know the professor because he told me about John Fleming. And I I would do anything for John Fleming. Who is still around. I've seen him on the train. It's amazing that he's still around. I ran into him at Staples a while ago. And I came running up to him and I shook his hand and I said, Hello, Professor Fleming, you are one of the best teachers I ever had. And not missing a beat, he looked at me and he said, and you, my dear, are one of the best students I ever had. Did he have any idea who you were? No! He had no idea. (laughs) But, uh, you know, looking at his age, he was just a little, he was a whippersnapper himself when he taught us old English. And we we studied old English, this is, we learned old this is English. in the 70s, dear. Ura father, thou um, And at the end of the course, you went over to his house yeah. in the basement. He would have a medieval feast. Oh, God. No utensils. Right. You had to eat like an old Englishman. Well, we can do that tonight if you so want. So that was fun. But anyway, this article is terrific. Old English is the language that most people in Britain spoke before the Norman Conquest in 1066 AD. That is when William the Conqueror takes over. He is French speaking, his court is French, and that's where we get the Romance aspect of our um, present day English language. And it's uh, a little bit different, has a slightly different alphabet with a few uh, other letters that we wouldn't be familiar with, but the grammar is easy, not difficult to learn. Um, enough early medieval words have survived into modern English that the vocabulary seems to unlock as you learn it. The old English word is unlooken, like a long stuck door to a hidden room in your house. And uh, um, Josephine Livingstone goes on to say one of the her favorite aspects of the language is the kenning. And the kenning is uh, basically these English words made of two nouns that are mashed together to create a new one. Uh, for instance, hron. Hron means whale. Rod means road or path. Put them together and you get hronrod or whale road, meaning ocean. And isn't that a great way to, to think of the ocean? I was thinking of railroad. As the road for whales. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's that. She goes on to describe Old English poetry, which is not a laugh a minute. It's mostly cold and brutal. You know, we when we think of uh, medieval stories, we think of knights on horseback and mm. damsels in distress. That's going to come much later. You know when? No. After the Crusades, it's the Crusaders 
who bring back those stories of courtly love, etc., from the Middle East. The Persians invent those stories. Oh, really? And then we adapt them and put them into our Renaissance fairs. Okay, so some of the words that uh, come up in Beowulf are fantastic. Healthpuswata. The word for honor is a wonderful word. Uh, word worth mindum. Worth mindum or mind worth. That's a great word for honor, isn't it? And how about body? Banhus or bone house mm, is the word good. for body. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, it's a well-written article that just really conveys her interest and enthusiasm for these really fun words. I'm not a linguist. I happen to know a few linguists and suddenly I really envy them being familiar with all this manner of old Well, I know that's, what is it, cold and brutal? Was that the phrase you used a moment ago? Yeah. Now that applies also to your next uh, thing, I know, which is... Review of a book about in the Wall Street Journal about the Vikings. Cold and brutal. Hard it is on earth with mighty whoredom. Axe time, sword time, oh, shields are sundered, wind time, wolf time, ere the world falls. And that's from a Viking, a poem from the Viking period. And uh, it's a review by Karen Altenberg of a book by Tom Shippey, S-H-I-P-P-E-Y. And the title of the book is Laughing Shall I Die. That sums it up. And it kind of it kind of delves into the Viking um, sort of psyche. And uh, what we um, what we know about Vikings is uh, that uh, it's not an ethnic group. It's kind of a, an occupation. Mm -hmm. They were raiders and traders, Norse seafarers who raided and traded across wide areas of Europe, yeah. and also Iceland, Greenland, Vineland, that would be North America. So they did important things in terms of exploration and trade. They were also horribly violent yeah. and <laughs> get brutal. Let's get okay? to that. Um, there's no use smoothing things over. The expansion that they caused was often violent and messy. There is evidence of human sacrifice, slavery, mass murder, and rape. Super. The continuing influence of the Vikings can be traced through the history of the British Isles, Europe, and beyond. Now, remember that Viking, this is, you know, there's kind of a discussion about where the word Viking comes from. Some people think it comes from the word Vic, meaning like inlet, which is where the Vikings would park their boats uh, and, you know, um, set up their uh, sort of staging areas for these raids, okay? So the Vikings were people who used the Vikes or mm -hmm. Vicks or whatever you want to call them. So, but another interesting translation involves uh, um, sort of understanding the word Viking as the distance um, between um, rower shifts, Okay. Okay. So if you're going on a long voyage, you need to switch from one rower to the other rower. They okay. weren't using sails. They were using rowers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at, a, at, at shift time, uh, one rower slides over and the next one uh, takes on. So it's a way of referencing long voyages um, because of, uh, you know, that kind of format. So anyway... 
How did the Vikings do it? What made them so fearless? And uh, so Mr. Shippey says that it has something to do with their mindset, a kind of death cult. Sifting through the sagas as well as reports from Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Irish, and Arabic chroniclers, he paints a convincing picture of the Vikings having a fatalistic attitude and being sometimes cheerfully unmoved by death. Yeah, I think that takes us back to the name of the book, which is Laughing Shall I Die? Well, yeah, let, let me give you that quote. Uh, For this reason, the heroes of the sagas are often the losers of the battles, and a recurring feature is the death song. Poems spoken by a dying Viking in a flat voice, giving away no emotion. The gods will invite me in, goes a famous one. In death, there is no sighing. The hours of life have passed. Laughing shall I die. Yeah, look, let me just say this. And it, it, what's the, the weirdest thing to me is it's not even that these, these poems are forward-looking, that there's a great afterlife. And uh, so death is no, not a big deal. No, the Vikings are one culture that did not believe in so there's afterlife. No, right. so here's it's a, only Ragnarok. It's a, the whole world comes to an end, right. including the gods. So this is how grim this is. It's not, the idea is, uh, you know, we're just hurrying up. Uh, maybe we die, maybe we don't. If we die, uh, we're going to chuckle about it. Afterlife, no. It's just, uh, that's it. We're bringing it to a close. That's that. If life is brief and there is nothing afterward, you have to focus on smiling at fate and conducting yourself with dignity. Well, okay, that sounds good. But uh, otherwise, it's kind of a rough deal. All right, so you're, if you're interested in uh, the mindset of the Vikings, Laughing Shall I Die by Tom Shippey. It's a lot to swallow. Uh, yeah, all right. But we will talk now about obituaries. We have a few obituaries before we get toward the end here. And you, you were found an article or two, but you also were mining the, the notices. Right, the death notices in the New York Times uh, this week were... Uh, just mesmerizing, incredibly fruitful. I'm limiting myself to three. Okay. But uh, first of all, it can be depressing to read these. Yeah, just so we're clear, because the death notices are the, are the little blurbs that are paid for, I think. Right, right. Uh, People submit them. Not the articles. For their relatives or right. their associates right. or, or whatever. So who you, you get kudos for finding interesting death notices. Well, that's because the type is so small, they're not even easy no, to read. That's, that's but a, here's the thing. Yeah. Some of them are so chock full yeah. of all these things Good. these people have done. Yeah. It's kind of fantastic. And so I was struck by one wonderful one, uh, Frederick R. Smith, mm-hmm. who um, in the middle of his, uh, they have him proclaiming who has lived a better life. His journey took him from a farm boy childhood in the deep south to the heights of achievement in New York City. Okay, he was an editor of magazines. He worked for Sports Illustrated, Town and Country, Smithsonian. He um, was the uh, editor in chief of American Home, also president and editorial director of East West Network. He graduated from the University of Alabama and then headed to New York. In his 80s, he becomes a watercolorist and uh, starts having exhibitions in his 90s. He had friends like Jean-Claude Killy, uh, among others. He was a great sportsman. He loved exotic locales and and did all kinds of You're burying the lead, burying the lead. The lead? He was one of the founding editors of Sports Illustrated. Right. And his main claim to fame is in 1964, 
he invented the swimsuit issue. There you go. There you go. So, I mean, it just seems like uh, Covered a, lot a of life ground. well lived. For sure. Uh, then I also noticed one, John Safer, yeah. who uh, passed away in McLean, Virginia. It uh, describes him as a sculptor. And uh, not that I know that much about 20th century sculptors, really. Um, I never heard of him. And he has quite a few monumental sculptures all over the place. Metal. Uh, it seems to be mostly. Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, the PA, PGA Tour, Georgetown University, uh, World Peace Foundation, all over. His sculptures have even be, been given to people like King Juan Carlos of Spain as a gift, mm -hmm. etc. Well, it turns out that he grew up in Washington, D.C., all right. He was able to read and write by the age of four. His parents put him into the Marais School. It's a French school. By the time he's 11, he's in high school. He enters George Washington University at age 16, when majoring in economics. Oh, okay. And uh, so you know he's smart. <laughs> and uh, by the time he graduates from college, then he uh, enlists in the Air Force yeah. and begins to see the world. At a certain point, he comes back, goes to Harvard Law School, and then goes back into the Air Force, sees a little bit more of the world. And at one point, he goes to the academia in Florence and spends some time alone somehow with uh, the Michelangelo's um, famous... Uh, 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 what's it called? Um, enslaved the prisoners. Uh, the, the kind of semi-finished sculptures, as if people are breaking out of the stones. It was part of that great uh, um, uh, tomb monument uh, for Pope Julius that was never quite finished. Anyway, he um, after that stint, he ends up taking going into the family business and builds a kind of uh, real estate. Empire. So he has this huge successful business as a businessman, and on the side, he's doing monumental sculptures, eventually involving his stepdaughter uh, to work with him. So another uh, life will lived. He was also a sportsman, but he didn't discover it till he was in high school. Until he was in high school, um, he always felt undersized and not too coordinated, and somehow the high school he went to helped him discover his own physicality. And last but not least, Evelyn Sloan Pine. A wonderful picture of her with uh, a nice blonde bob and pearls, uh, kind of those uh, uh, Barbara Bush uh, kind of pearls. And uh, she uh, actually uh, was a Jersey girl and um, had a wonderful life. She was the daughter of the founder of W.J. Sloan, as in furniture. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, grows up in the decorating uh, business uh, because it's the family thing, but also the estate she grew up on, okay, um, now on one side of it is uh, actually, um, was purchased, is the headquarters of the United States Golf Association and her own house that she lived in is now the United States uh, Golf so, so Museum. Play, she can okay. play golf. I she guess. grew up playing golf. She okay. was the Somerset, uh, what is it, uh, Somerset County Champion or something. Oh, she won the New Jersey Amateur Title in 1966, and uh, she was a member of the Somerset Hills Country Club Women's Team for 
50 years. Well, that's the thing that jumps out at you, the uh, country club uh, member of the team. She was a great bridge player. She loved to travel. She traveled into her 80s and 90s. Um, had All right. a great How old time. was she when she died? She uh, died. Now you're asking me hard questions. All right. Well, she's in her 90s, wait, 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 obviously. Wait, wait. She was born in 1922. Oh, my goodness. Well, she's 96. Yeah. So these are some lives well lived, and uh, I, I don't think I can ever uh, match up to any of them. Well, but uh, it, you know, it's I have another ninety-year-old hero, though I, I have to confess this was actually an article as opposed to the notices. Uh, although no one I ever heard of a man named Norman Gimbel, who turns out to have written, uh, he was a lyricist, but he's a lyricist of a lot of uh, well-known stuff. Uh, Killing me softly with his song. Uh, the uh, It Goes Like It Goes, the theme song for Norma Ray, the themes for Happy Days, and for Laverne and Shirley, uh, for uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, I Will Wait For You, I Will Follow Him. That's a song he wrote himself. You might have remembered that one. That was uh, in the 19, 1963. I Will Follow Him. I, I, I got that. I know you yeah. wanted me to sing that. Uh, but in any event... The guy was just an eclectic guy. He wrote lyrics for a lot of things. In some cases, uh, you know, he translated. Uh, or he had to come up with English lyrics. And the, uh, the girl from Ipanema would be an example of that. Um, and I, Which I wouldn't say is not brilliant lyrics, to my mind. You would say it is or is not? Not. Well, well we could argue but that. But he just has to fit into what's already there. Exactly. Anyway. He's got his yeah. hands in a lot of pies. And it's just the guy I never heard of. It. It's an interesting quote at the end. He had a, a partner, a fellow named Charles Fox, who wrote the music for some of his songs. And Fox actually is quoted here in an interview as to what it is that Kimball did. It was so successful. Here's the quote that I thought is kind of interesting. He said, uh, uh, here's the quote. Fox praised uh, Gimbel's ability to conjure up an entire song with its first line. That was his trick. He, did a, he, he really hooked people with the first line. Quote, tall and tan and young and lovely, strumming my pain with his fingers. If it takes forever, I will wait for you. So that was the thing. Got him in the first different songs. All different songs. Yes, we all know those songs, right? Yes. And yes. it's always the first line. But that's, you know, I was thinking about that. No, other I, songs. I, I love a lot of those songs. But, I but, but my I point, don't need to... Uh, but if I found myself asking, is that work for every song? Maybe that's the way all songwriters do it. And the answer is no. I mean, uh, there's a lot of songs that, from great songwriters, and it builds, it takes its time, especially if it's written for a character. Right. But these are songs, you, you just hooks them with the first line. So if we ever get in that business, that's the way we're going to do it. The first line. Roberta Flack, Killing Kill, Me Softly. Killing Me Softly. Well, that's, that's the... Soundtrack of my freshman year. That is the recording of that song. There's no question about it. All right. So finally, we said we'd do something about New Year's resolutions. And, oh, know, God. I hope not. Well, I'm not going to give a New Year's resolution. I, my point is that New Year's resolutions make no sense to me. And there is no better uh, illustration of that than a headline from the New York Post. The New York Post blares the headline... Lines for salads out of control after eat healthy resolutions. That's the headline. It's like men from Mars have landed. And then it has a photograph, which unfortunately we cannot show, of near mob-like groups of people in places like uh, Sweet Green and Chop lined up for their salads. Meanwhile, you said to me that there's no one... At Chick-fil-A this week. That's right. That's right. I mean, they have, uh, they interview the folks. Uh, they, they ask the security guard at McDonald's on East 42nd Street. He says, oh, it's very, very slow today. This is the first few days of November. They talk to someone at Chick-fil-A. They said, oh, it's been extra slow at Chick-fil-A at Vanderbilt and Madison. Um, and yet, they uh, say the other places are going crazy. A sweet green uh, 
you have to wait in line behind 50 people, this woman Julie Pastor said, to get her guacamole and greens bowl. Uh, line outside the door at Jess Salem at 51st and Park. Uh, and uh, it's January. These places, you could have waltzed in in December. You can waltz in in March. But uh, it's January. People want to be there. And believe me, there are some serious implications. And here's the quote of the article. Quote, you guys can go F yourselves. And the quote, one hangry businessman in a Patagonia puffer vest was overheard telling his colleagues at lunchtime on Thursday as he ditched the 100-plus long line at Chopped on West 51st between 6th and 7th. So and where did he go? Uh, we don't know, but it's getting the people. It's well, getting it's like the that. You've been crabby about the gym for uh, that uh, reason. Not, we expect we, the gym. We don't want to give but people the impression that I can be I, crabby. But <laughs> it's... We got, I, the gym is crazy. Ha- I didn't know it happened the gym the gym is The gym is 25% more crowded, and I will say the sauna is 50% more crowded, which is a whole other story. But my point is, yeah, people believe in this stuff. People show up at certain places in January as if, uh, you know, it's uh, they got to do things differently. It's I January. I think you're doing the math right. What, what do you mean? In the sauna, because usually there's like one or two guys. Now there's three or four. That's more I like, think that's like 200%. 100%. 100%. But in any event... Something's going on. It's amazing. People do. It's, 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 again, it's like the bows on the cars. It's a real thing. It's just funny. If you catch a wave, you can make a lot of money on this. It's I mean, if you funny. Would, people lining up for salads. If you I mean, do, I love a salad. Pop-up salad place, I, I, I think, in Cranberry, New Jersey. I'm not a fair-weather salad eater. Well, yeah. that's it. That's it. That's the thing that you really irks them. You see these fly-by-night people. That's exa- and that's what and happens at the gym, yeah. right? Well, uh, you know, whatever. That's the way the gym's made. Right, that sour note. It's not sour. It's just I don't understand people. Listen, I don't understand why they eat bows on cars. I would, love, I would love to talk all night, but, you know, I've got a birthday cake to bake. Oh, my, it's a little late for that. <laughs> Get that. I hope that thing's already in the oven. I can't imagine you waited this long. Well, you have till tomorrow. All right. So until next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. Hopefully we'll be back. Hopefully. Thank you.